Good afternoon. Welcome to your final show of Cannabis Insider. We have a special show of Cannabis Insider today. It's going to be a different format than what you're used to. And I'm here. I'm going to, I'm going to make him wait because Javier just made me wait on him coming to the show. You were late. <laughs> you thought I was going to let you off the hook, but Javier Haas was late to this show. I want everybody to know that. We're continuing the theme. Oh, it's, it's 4 p.m. It's 4 p.m. Come on. <laughs> uh, we're continuing the theme of us being terrible people. That, that's, that's what we're doing here. Javi, what's up, man? I'm all good. All good. Did you say last show? Of this week. What did I hear? Of this week. Oh, last show this week. I was like, oh. Yeah, come on. Unless you're doing one by yourself tomorrow that we don't know of, which, you know, well, I guess you'll decide. I, am. I actually <laughs> am recording a very cool show tomorrow that we'll bring to you next week. Any teaser? Should I say what it is? Yeah, why not? Sure. The news is so out. Tomorrow we're talking to Chris Beals, CEO of Wheat Maps, that is M A P S, Maps on the NASDAQ. Uh, about recent earnings, their new business products, a bunch of stuff. Super, super cool conversation. We'll be airing that next week. Next week's so going to have some shows, y'all. Right. Yeah, I'm talking yes. to Abner Curtin, CEO of Ascend Ooh. Wellness, about his earnings on uh, the 16th. I believe those come out on the 15th. Uh, we get to talk to a lot of these C-suites at least once a quarter uh, and recap. Uh, but you know what? We don't do enough, and this is not a joke, admittedly so, is we do not talk about equity enough under the umbrella of finance. And that is the whole purpose of today. Uh, the whole purpose of this panel uh, is to dive in further to that conversation, specifically under the Benzinga umbrella with cannabis of finance and, and business-related discussions. Mm -hmm. and I'm super excited to host that discussion in partnership with Council for Federal Cannabis uh, Regulation. Almost forgot what the R stood for. Uh, Javi, anything you wanna say before we bring on these amazing women and thought leaders? No, nothing. Honestly, I want to hear from them. I want to hear from the experts. I have a bunch of questions. I am looking forward to the discussion. I'm looking forward to learning a lot, you know, about what they will be sharing. Uh, a little bit of it that is self-interested, of course, as a uh, minority business owner, I, I certainly can find uh, a lot of uses for the discussion we'll have today. So let's get it on. Let's do it. Let's. So Aaron Thomas, let us bring Sarah Chase, Executive Director for CFCR. Sarah, welcome back. How are you? Hi. Hi, fellas. Uh, Javier, glad you could make it this afternoon. I know you were <laughs> like 4.20 would be the drop-in time, but uh, just stay a little early. <laughs> Shots fired. I love it, Sarah. Awesome. So, hey, do you want to give us a little quick recap uh, of, of yourself, of CFCR, and then we'll get started? Yeah, well, well, thanks, Elliot. Thanks, Javier. Um, as, as some of the viewers know, I'm Sarah Chase, the Executive Director for the Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation, and that's CFCR. And CFCR is an independent nonprofit. We're based here in Washington, D.C., and our mission is to legitimize cannabis by assisting the federal government, its, uh, its regulatory agencies, and industry to rethink, develop, and implement evidence-based cannabis regulations. And uh, I got to say, we got some amazing guests today, um, and it mm. is really a privilege of mine to be able to introduce these two powerhouse ladies to all of you. I'm um, pumped. Let's do it. All right. Um, first of all, we have Natalie Papillon, who's the Director of Strategic In Initiatives at The Last Prisoner Project. Um, Natalie, you want to say a few things about yourself and what you do at LPP? 
Hi, nice to see everyone. Thanks for having me on. Um, Like Sarah mentioned, Natalie Papion, I work for Last Prisoner Project, which is a nonprofit that is focused on broadly cannabis criminal justice reform. So whether it's on the local or state or federal level, we are working to release cannabis prisoners as well as advocate for legislation um, that will end the criminalization of cannabis as well as provide retroactive relief. So expungement, resentencing, et cetera, et cetera, for people who have been negatively impacted by marijuana prohibition. So that's me and I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Welcome, Natalie. Awesome, thanks, Natalie. Uh, and now I have a really distinct privilege of introducing Christine De La Rosa, who's the CEO and co-founder of the People's Ecosystem. And she also happens to be the chair of the DEI and Access to Capital Committee for CFCR. So welcome, Christine. Tell us all about you. Hi, everyone. So good to see you. Nice to be back on Benzinga. Hi, Javier. Hi, Elliot. And Natalie, of course. Um, my name is Christine De La Rosa. I am the CEO and co-founder of the People's Ecosystem. We are an operating company, uh, multi-state in California and New Mexico right now, hopefully expanding soon. I'm also um, the managing partner of the People's Group, which is a fund that finances BIPOC and women-led cannabis companies or cannabis operators as well in the space, and also the founding member of the People's DAO, where we are building a cannabis bank to fund founders um, of BIPOC and women founders. Wow. That sounds cool. <laughs> I can't wait to hear more about that. Well, you know, we're on a finance thing and we're always trying to figure out better ways, different ways in which to finance the larger industry. That is not the larger MSOs, which we need also. Mm -hmm. but, but how are we funding our smaller operators, our legacy, our mid operators, our two, two state operators that also need funding? Fantastic. And, and I would say for the Benzinga audience, uh, Christine's going to also be at Benzinga Chicago that's coming up pretty soon. So if you want a chance to meet with her, that is a great opportunity. Uh, and those dates are the 13th and 14th of September? Correct. 13th and 14th for the content. Uh, Christine will be speaking on the 14th, but you should be there on the 12th. <laughs> um, to, to kind of start this conversation off a little bit, um, Natalie, I got a question for you to just sort of set the stage for us a little bit. Um, what kind of criminal justice reform issues are at play today um, and how are they sort of impacting people who want to get into the industry? That's a great question. So there are basically two buckets of sort of um, criminal justice issues that you know, we should be focusing on as a cannabis community, as a cannabis industry. One is sort of ending the criminalization of cannabis, right? So despite the fact that there are state regulated marketplaces, despite the fact that there is um, so much activity sort of in the private sector around cannabis, there remain, it remains the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people who still need to be arrested and um, oftentimes incarcerated for either long or short periods for cannabis related activity, whether that's possession, distribution, et cetera, et cetera. And so that on ongoing criminalization issue is something that we need to work on, work towards um, ending, right? So when we have this idea that um, cannabis is something associated with criminality, obviously that has an impact on the broader financial landscape, right? That, that we need to sort of into the stigmatization of cannabis. And when you have criminal laws governing it, um, obviously that's you know, counterintuitive. That's counterproductive. So one, that's one bucket. The other bucket is people who are currently um, saddled with cannabis-related convictions, whether or arrest or or um, sort of negative criminal justice system interactions because of cannabis-related activity, and needing to make sure that 
those things are off their record so they can, if they so choose, enter the regulated industry. Oftentimes, these are the people who have been doing this for years and decades. These are the people who are, um, in many ways, most skilled at, you know, cultivation, at distribution. Um, these are really the, the wizards um, and people who have been working for decades to build up this industry. And yet, because of their criminal histories, they can't necessarily get into the industry. Um, obviously, if you take out a huge swath of people who have expertise, um, from the building up of industry, you're not going to have the most um, robust marketplace um, that and you're not going to have the best sort of consumer facing products and whatnot. So we also need to make sure those records are cleared so people can enter the industry and any barriers to entering um, regulated marketplaces um, need to be eliminated or barriers to entry for people with criminal records need to be eliminated so um, they can sort of join the industry and, and really thrive. Now, to take a flip side approach to that, too, um, you know, the disenfranchise of, of people and the, the sort of stigmatization that goes along with having a criminal record often means that you have a hard time accessing capital and you have to sort of think in new ways in order to um, sort of support an industry that's moving out of a, um, a legacy market into a legal market. So, Christine, the question for you is, how do we now get those financial instruments to the people who really need them? Well, you know, this is a really interesting question that we're always solving for. And just to sort of jump off what Natalie's saying, like, they're doing stuff that's so awesome for this reentry for people who've been formerly incarcerated, for people who are still incarcerated, right? And so you have this new industry where you can really create change. And we just keep missing the mark time and time again, state after state after state. And part of that is because we don't have financial instruments that can actually help formerly incarcerated folks, right? And we have not been talking um, from a financial perspective, not Natalie, but from people who are in finance who are putting together equity deals and debt facilities and all of that good stuff, have not actually been talking to the people that are going to need these facilities to see what they need. And typically, financial instruments should be solving a problem, not creating a new one. And so one of the things that we really think about all the time is what are formerly incarcerated folks, which we are going to see enter the market, especially in New York, like that's a mandate. What are they going to need to be able to succeed? And of course, New York did this really awesome thing where they're like, we got a $200 million debt facility. They called it a social equity fund, but it's a recent real estate debt facility. And while that's awesome, you're going to give 150 people leases, they're going to be built out. They don't have to worry about the TIs. No one is talking about how much it's going to cost to stand up those dispensaries. And so we're still doing the thing that we did in California. We're doing the thing that we did in New Jersey. We did the thing that we did in New Mexico. Is we were like, here's a golden ticket that you can never use. And that is soul crushing, actually. It's soul crushing to be holding the golden ticket and not have access to capital. So when we're thinking about this sort of in a broader term, we're thinking what type of facilities would be helpful that where we also get a return on investment, but it's not an extractive debt facility, it's not an extractive equity or management thing, what can we do? And so we're really starting to think about how do we go into different markets and different investors that are not trying to make 28% on a debt facility to a social equity applicant who got a license, right? And so in thinking about that, we are, we're talking to the people that are need to tell us what they need not what we are going to provide for them. What do they need and how can we make it worth work for both those folks and the, fo and, 
you know, folks who are going to get the licenses and folks who are trying to figure out how to enter the market, whether through investment or debt. You know, I, I have a quick follow up here, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know we're talking about financing, right? And, and, and money is a key factor in all of this, right? But you're holding the, the golden ticket. Maybe you get the financing, but there's so many other things that go into running a cannabis business, whether it's touching the planner or not generally running a business that that many of us don't really know right like what can we do to su to support like minority entrepreneurs there right because you know for for instance right i i, I got funded I, I got a company funded by benzinga right uh but if they hadn't been supporting me with logistical stuff with administrative stuff with management stuff with uh, advice you know I, I wouldn't be able to run it right because it's not just getting the check but but the actual execution, the, the, the using the money, right? Um, so what are the things do you think we can do? What are some of the, the key pitfalls that you see, some of the key areas where, where, where people can, can look for help and where they can find this help, right, ultimately? Because um, most of the times you'll get just random people going like, I'm an advisor, so for this much money, I'll help you do it. <laughs> and you know the whole point of it is is you know i don't have more money to, to spend on this i need someone to tell me how to make money off this business and i think one of the things really key here um javier that you really touched on is that a lot of the people that are out there saying hey pay me this for an advisory fee don't understand cannabis they understand other markets but they don't understand cannabis so they end up not being really great advisors i think the thing that you should be looking for because this is what i was looking for when i started raising capital seven years ago is you need to look for some type of group or accelerator that's not telling you how to create a business plan that's not telling you how to create um, a pitch deck that's actually telling you how to be how to create your capital stacks understanding what a financial mean just like you said I got a check, but what do I do with this check? A lot of times people of color, myself included, we get a check and we think about it very much in terms of credit card debt, right? So we're like, let's pay off all of our debt. And that's not what you do in business. You take money that you get invested into our debt facilities to create revenue so that you can pay your debt, but from the revenue, not from the money that you're paying 28% on, right? And so teaching people about how to understand their capital stack, at what point do I take equity? At what point do I take debt? When do I actually use the debt? And how much debt can I take on realistically based on my balance sheet, my profit and loss statements where I don't put my company in jeopardy? These are things that we're not taught. If, if you're not an MBA or you didn't go, like I have a master's in humanities. I didn't learn about financial instruments. I had to learn that on my own, right? So what we really need to be doing is teaching folks about the money part of the business. Yes, you do need a business plan. You need you do need a data room. You do need a, uh, um, a performa. All of those are things that you need. But you also underneath need to understand how you do your finances. How do you spend your money? And I will do a shameless plug here. But um, we have an accelerator called the People's Accelerator, and we don't talk about anything else except money. How do I create a capital stack? What do I need to do? What do I need to know about terms? Um, how do I know when to utilize the different capital that I've put together for my company? Why do I need stuff? Why do I need anything other than equity? Because a lot of people, myself included back in the day, didn't even understand that I should go for debt. So anyway, that's what I would tell you is to look for people that are talking to you about how to utilize money not necessarily how to put together a business plan. So if you're looking at for advisors, this is a good question to ask. Tell me what you think about what my capital stack should be based on my business model. 
that's a really good tell. If they can't tell you that, they're probably not the advisor for you. Well, I love that. That was great from both of you all. So very, very brief follow-up for me and, and just uh, from an under, seek to understand standpoint. Uh, obviously, you know, you mentioned New York uh, from a state and market perspective. Uh, you said they are doing something, but they're not doing what they need to be doing. However, I really can't think of another market that's like eons better or, or way better. Is, is there a, is there another market that's doing anything differently and or better? And two, who's leading these conversations? Uh, who is supporting the industry from the government and market side to put these plans into place and or who needs to be? I mean, that may be a deeper question than it should have been, but I don't need it to be, I don't mean it to be like a, a deep question. I'm really just curious. Are you asking me? Yes, please. Oh yeah, sure, no problem. Um, so just for instance, recently we put together, you know, the the part, the piece over here for the real estate for the first 150, but there's no solution for the $2.2 million that they're going to need to start up. Like this is before they do anything, before they sell to a person. They have to get their inventory. They got to get their odor mitigation center. They got to get their security system. They've got to get their POS system. This is all money. Where is that going to come from? So you hand somebody in New York a license. You say, here's a, a totally renovated place for you. That's turnkey. Awesome. But then you're going to be like, okay, good luck. No, you can't do that. Um, so there's a lot of different things that are being thought about right now in the industry. I'm sure the state and the city of New York are also doing a lot of work for that um, in terms of trying to figure out how to fill those gaps. Um, one of the things that, you know, just as somebody who thinks about this from an operator's perspective, I think we're going to see in the course of maybe the next six to 12 months as these licenses start to go out, that we're going to see the states and the cities try to solve for this gap of capital that's going to happen for each group. And that's where it has to go. And when you ask me, is there any other group that's doing it any better? I always point to New Mexico. Yes, they have an open system, but I'm going to tell you, we got our licenses in New Mexico because it was an open system. It's taken, we just got our licenses in Fresno, California. We've been working on that since 2018. They released the licenses in New Mexico at the end of last year. We applied in February and got our, our license for the full vertical in March of this year. So you see that difference? I didn't have to wait four years, spend four years of time, money and energy to get the same licenses that I just got in Fresno that we got in New Mexico it was very easy. It was very cheap because they're an open market. Now, people will look to Oklahoma and be like, well, that was an open market and it was terrible. Look how horrible it is. And they just had to close it down. Well, yes, they didn't have any they didn't have any guardrails. New Mexico came and said, OK, we're going to leave it open. We want to have the most people apply, but we're going to put in a few guardrails. I really have to say that my experience is an open economy like in New Mexico or Oklahoma has a better chance of benefiting people of color and women than closed ones like in New Jersey, which in their first round had zero people of color and no black people get a license and in New York, which is now going to be another Hunger Games for that 150 to come in. Now, New York has a, they have a huge, um, I think they're in a better place because they did set aside $200 million to, to help with the, with the real estate. So that's, that's a good thing. But I also think that there's some short-sightedness to be like, okay, now you got that. Now you got the location. How do you actually stand up your business? And if we had access to SBA loans, this would not be such a hard question.
bravo, bra, brava, I should say, on the SBA loans, because that's mm -hmm. exactly what federal regulation will help to bring to a lot of this. Um, Natalie, I got a follow up question for you, too, which is, you know, Christine's talking a lot about what you need in terms of business knowledge and business experience of this. But getting that is often very hard in the first place if you're coming out of um, out of incarceration. So are there other ways of, of and we think of capital in terms of, you know, most of us are thinking about investment, but there's also grants and loans and other things that are available. And what are some of the grant opportunities that are out there for people who want to get into the industry? Well, at LPP, one you know, one of the things that we do for people who are reentering um, society after uh, incarceration is we give financial grants to people, sort of no strings attached, um, sort of their their needs based, um, needs tested. But we basically say, normally if you're coming out of jail or prison, you're given a bus ticket and maybe thirty or forty dollars. Um, LPP will actually just write you a check for up to five thousand dollars, and that just helps you sort of pay your first couple of months of rent, perhaps. To, allows you to access uh, stable transportation so you can get to your, you know, employer. Um, maybe you have medical bills that, you know, you have health issues that weren't treated while you were incarcerated, and that sort of helps cover that. So even simple grants to get people into a space where they can sort of um, breathe for a second and figure out their next move. And that next move may be trying to enter the regulated industry. But until you're sort of in a place where you can, you know, pay for groceries, pay your rent, et cetera, et cetera, you can't even make that transition. So I think that bridge of sort of um, no strings attached capital, not tremendous sums of money, but um, really, really uh, can be incredibly impactful to, to people who are returning from incarceration. Now, I, I want to pick up on that, and then I also want to um, kind of ask Christine to talk a little bit more about SBA, too, and the important role there. But I think before, just kind of picking up on what Natalie said, um, maybe we could talk about level setting, too. And, and what are some reasonable expectational returns for people who are getting into this this industry and this market? And Christine, I know, you know, this is not this is not the huge tech industry. This is not Silicon Valley. So how can we level set this a little bit to make sure that expectations are, are correct? This is agriculture. This is what this is. I just think that that's such a simple thing. And it just cracks me up because I was, you know, in 100%. the business back in 2014, 2015, when we started to see all of this money come in, especially in Canada, where literally anybody who invested in anything 2015, 2016, 2017 lost their shirt. Majority of those people did because they did treat it like a tech industry, right? They thought they were going to get a 10x return in three years. And I was like, we're growing plants. This is a different thing. It's a physical thing that we have to do. So I think the first level set for any investor is to understand that this is agriculture. And I, I likened it a little bit to like the oil um, industry. It's not anything like the oil industry, except in this one reserve. People who invest in oil, they invest knowing my A, they may never get a return. I don't think that you, that's not a great thing, but I'm just letting you know, they understand that it's a long-term investment. It's like five to 10 years. People are searching for something, right? And also they understand that it is not tech. And so in similar ways in cannabis, you have to understand that it's agriculture. It is federally illegal. So your return is after federal regulation. If you're trying to get a 10X return pre, prior to federal legalization, that is pie in the sky and whoever tells you that's going to happen they're lying to you and then the third thing i think for level setting is to understand that this is a long-term play it is going to be incredibly lucrative it is going to be that it is not that now and so when you're investing you're not investing on are you going to make money in three years are you going to make money in one year what you're looking at is saying 
is this going to pay off in 10 years, much like oil, right? Is it going to be a big deal in oil? Yes, because at the point that federal legalization happens, we go from an 11% return, 6 to 11% return because of 280E, to a 40 to 60% return. And that's where the money is. And so investors need to really consider that when they're looking at brands or companies or operating companies and really look to them and say, where are they going to be in five years? And also consider what what they're going to be around social equity, because federal legalization is going to require this. So if the company that you're investing in is not actively figuring out how to do social equity, diversity, equity and inclusion, ESG, all of this stuff, they are going to be left behind when the federal government says you don't get any money, you don't get any breaks. We're not going to give you any incentives because you have an all white board and an all white C-suite and you don't have any ESG and you don't have no any DII initiative. So understand that when you're looking for a company, this is not something to be slept on. You will lose your money if you're investing in a company that doesn't have these very basic things that the federal government is going to require. And well said. Yeah, bravo. I mean, this, this is great because I think both of you are really talking about what is the long-term implication of all of these? What are some of the unintended consequences that we have to deal with, including people coming out of a prison who just basically need a, a small income to get to the next step, right? Um, and speaking of the next step, when we're talking about federal federal legalization, what, what, what's coming down the road with regulation, what is the role of SBA, Christine, in your opinion, and, and how are people in this industry going to better be able to take advantage of that? For me, the SBA is the daddy of all funds. There's just nowhere else to put it. Government has so much money. And SBA was built for small to mid-sized businesses, right? And so imagine if you could go to an SBA. And you and one of the things that we're working as a fund is our rubric about how do you identify viable companies when the companies that are going to be the most viable are coming from formerly incarcerated folks, from legacy operators, because they have the market. They are the market. Like, there's no new market it's the old market trying to transition into the new world mm -hmm. sba will be so vital for them but they have to also understand how to how to identify credit worthiness among formerly incarcerated people among legacy operators that have been dealing in the in the underground and how to man, how to understand what their value is and so for me the sba has a huge responsibility but also opportunity to be able to fund a lot of these brands, companies, cultivators, black and brown farmers, auxiliary businesses um, in a way that's not extractive, but integrative, that allows for there to be an entire sub tier of businesses that are not the large scale MSOs, which are going to exist no matter what. I don't have any problem with large scale MSOs. We need them. But they also need that mid tier to small tier to craft cannabis. And this is yeah. where they, they can be absolutely one of the most impactful things because they have the most money. I'd love to know, and, and Natalie, I think this question starts with you and then maybe evolves to Christine. Those states and regions that are doing more for those to either prevent incarcerations, to um, stop um, targeting marijuana offenses. I, I'm from Kentucky. Uh, the Montrez Herald story was... Uh, incredibly large, but like not everybody has $10,000 to pay uh, on a fine. Uh, in fact, I think the vast majority of who we're talking about do not have that. So I'm curious, as we look at um, these, uh, these states that are potentially better uh, and more friendly to the industry than others, 
Um, I'd love to know who those are. And then maybe are those the same states that are creating these open markets that are creating um, that are creating better social equity programs or are those two different um, two different regions? That's an interesting question. So I don't want to overgeneralize, but I will say for the purposes of this conversation, um, the states who tend to be better about uh, lowering the criminalization of cannabis tend to be more liberal states, right? Um, they tend to be your New York's, your California's to an extent, your Illinois, so forth and so on. Um, and those are states that tend to be, the, you know, rather early to legalize. Um, and at least they haven't, you know, to varying levels of success, they are working on social equity programs, right? That is a priority. New York's a really good example. Um, that's where I'm based. I think New York until the mid 2000s was sort of the cannabis arrest capital of the, the country, right? The four, four of the five boroughs were the top largest counties in terms of per capita marijuana arrest um, across the entire United States. I think they, this pendulum has swung the opposite direction. I think many people could argue that New York has some of the most progressive policing policies around cannabis in the country. And they, whether it's the $200 million fund, whether it's sort of the you know um, equity licensing scheme, I think they're trying to really rectify those wrongs. Now, that's not to say that more liberal states are the only states that are actually um, creating opportunity for people who may have been criminalized before. I think um, really open markets with uh, lower uh, barriers to ac accessing those markets can be really great for people who don't have a couple million dollars in the bank or, you know, access to family offices and whatnot. So there is this tension where a lot of the states that are more progressive on the criminal justice side of things also just have prohibitively high costs to enter the regulated market. Um, and so you have that tension that, that, that we have to sort of solve. And I know it's something Christine thinks about day in and day out. So. <laughs> yeah. Christine, anything you'd like to add to that? That was great. Emily. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Natalie. Um, I think the only thing I would add to that is that um, we have to, for me personally, and no shade to anybody who uses the term social equity, I don't use that anymore. I find it to be flawed and an abject failure in every state. We'll see what happens in New York because New York is a new thing, but to me, it's been an abject failure. So for me, I don't, you know, I feel like social equity has created a hunger games for the people of color where we're stepping on each other's faces to try to get these like golden tickets. And so I do like places um, that have an open market. And I go back to even Oklahoma. I have a friend who got one of the LA licenses in the first round. And if you know anything about LA, it was just terrible and it continues to be so. He also got a license in Oklahoma. This is an El Salvadorian man. He moved his entire family to Oklahoma. He opened up a dispensary within three months of getting his license. He's opening up his second dispensary. He hasn't been able to get his dispensary license um, walkthrough approved in LA. And he did that a year and a half. He did Oklahoma a year and a half after he got his LA license. So to me, that is a huge spotlight of how difficult it is in some of the states that are the most liberal, absolutely. And I appreciate California, I'm from here, so I appreciate that. Um, but it's so liberal that they just make a block, right? It's a block because they're just mm. doing too much. And you have a, a state like Oklahoma, which is absolutely not liberal because I'm from Texas and I spent a lot of time in Oklahoma, being more open than an Salvadorian man would take his entire family from LA to Oklahoma City because there was more opportunity. And I think what we have to figure wow. out is how to level set between this coast and the, the interior of the, of the country, because 
not everybody is doing it perfect and nothing is right because everything is, you know, subject to a personal, you know, experience. But we have to start to look and see, like, where are we making too many barriers in the hope of, you know, helping? And where are we seeing there's lower barriers to entry? Because it's not about helping, it's about getting business stood up. And I think that that is the tension that Natalie's talking about. It is absolutely a tension right now. Man, I, I do, I do like, you know, however, uh, the, the, you know, the part where Natalie recognizes, right, that, that the states that are trying, you know, it, it, it is worth acknowledging, right? Uh, intent is not, is not important in many situations, but honestly, like showing that willingness to engage in these conversations and these activities, whether we call them social equity, whether we call them reparations, whether we call them equal opportunity, whatever we want to call them, right? Like, the fact that they are trying to do something, you know, is is very telling, and and it says a lot about the, the policymakers and the politicians and the actual population of the of the states, you know, where where we're seeing these programs. Unless they stop you from actually realizing what you were supposed to realize, which is the ability to sell cannabis legally. And I always point to Illinois for that, right? Illinois, I remember when it came out, I was so excited. It was the first time social equity was written into legislation. And mm -hmm. here we are mm -hmm. almost three years later, and none of those people have opened up a, a dispensary. So yes, I agree with you, Javier, that we need to say, you know, give kudos where kudos is due. But sometimes, and this is a personal opinion, not the opinion of the ecosystem or anybody, just personal Sometimes I feel like that was by design, that by saying all of these great words, by saying social equity, by saying here, here we are doing all of this amazing stuff and we cannot point to a successful state, was that by design that we couldn't actually enter the market, but we could spend months and years spinning our wheels, double mortgaging our homes, going into further debt, and we still don't have the reparations, if you want to call it, or the social equity that we were supposed to have. And sometimes I do stay up at night and wonder, was that by design that they use all of these pretty words to be like, see over there while they were doing a bunch of stuff over here? I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe that's my conspiracy theory person. But sometimes I do wonder that because I don't see no, it's fair. any industry successful with people of color, at least. It's fair. I'm just an optimist. I know. <laughs> Well, I'm wondering if, if anyone has any closing thoughts. I mean, my, my takeaways on this are, are we have to we have to really level set on on sort of all sides here, and you know that long term thinking is is the key goal because this is you know it, it took a long time for this for this industry to get where it is. It's going to take a long time for this to now be a stable marketplace, and we have to really kind of think through all of these challenges um, and and find the best solutions as we go. And and I'm so heartened to have Natalie and Christine as champions around all of this too, because you're brilliant, brilliant, brilliant women. And uh, any final thoughts from either of you? I just want to thank you for having us on. I think it's critically important we talk about these issues. Um, sometimes people aren't super jazzed about it, but it's really, really important, both from sort of an ethical and a moral standpoint, as well as like, it's good for business, right? Yeah. If we can be honest and open and information share and be really candid, which I really appreciate. Um, I think we're going to see more opportunity for more people and that's sort of everyone's goal, right? And yeah. I would just say, like, first of all, thank you, Sarah, for bringing me on board for CFCR. I'm super excited. You know, I've worked with municipalities, I've worked with states. And so now being able to work with the federal government through CFCR, 
I mean, as an operator, I know my pain points and I know I'm, a lot of the pain points that I have are shared with others. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk at that level about how we've gone through several iterations. And so we, we have some knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. So I really appreciate the ability to be able to be part of that conversation. So I wanted to thank you personally for bringing me on. Well, I think it's, it's it was a no-brainer choice because you are absolutely one of the, the best people I've ever met to and, and to work with. And Natalie, I hope we can do more with Last Prisoner Project too, because I've I've just been so impressed by everything you've done, um, the history that Steve D'Angelo has put together over there, and basically what you do for people as they're coming out um, and to help give them a new life and a new opportunity, because that's that's where it happens. Amen. And I will say, because we always let Sarah Chase have the last words in these panels, as she should, uh, benzinga.com slash cannabis, all your cannabis news throughout the day, because Javier is the best writer in cannabis. That's all I'm going to say for this time. No, uh, that is not true. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty true. But Sarah, we, we want to thank Sarah and CFCR for these amazing conversations that you've helped set up over the last two months. We're going to keep these rolling. Very excited for this to get more content out there. Uh, with that, Sarah, you want to wrap us up? What else is next for CFCR? Well, first of all, plug for, for Javier in Argentina, because it's a second in, in my heart is one of my favorite countries. So love having him on. Um, and also make sure that you do go to Benzinga in Chicago. Check out Christine there. Um, have Say hello to Elliot. Um, make sure that you are registered and you go because it's going to be a great event. Um, and I, I do want to just quickly end by saying that, you know, CFCR, we we believe in representing the, the diverse, the equitable and the inclusive cultural ideals um, of the new cannabis marketplace, which is why we do advocate across the regulatory process to ensure that these values are meaningfully represented and that barriers do come down at the federal level. Um, and our vision with these conversations with Benzinga is to really bring the stakeholders surrounding the cannabis marketplace and the federal government to create uh, basically a safe and accessible marketplace. So you can check us out online at www.uscfcr.org and we're on social media at USCFCR. Uh, and again, thanks to our guests today for this incredible conversation. Um, and I look forward to next month where we're gonna discuss safe banking and we'll have a couple of guests from Capitol Hill and also the Marijuana Policy Project. So thank you everyone. And thanks to Christine and Natalie for a great conversation today. Thank you all.